Welcome back. After a brief sabbatical, or somewhat brief sabbatical, I am back at him, and I have an amazing interview today with David J. Brown. David is an author. Uh, he is a science fiction writer. He's been called one of the most interesting interviewers uh, or compelling interviewers on the planet. He's actually spent the last number of decades interviewing some of the most prominent philosophers and visionaries of the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And we're talking about everybody from people like Stephen Hawking to George Carlin to Ram Das, Robert Anton Wilson, Terrence McKenna, Timothy Leary, Deepak Chopra, Jerry Garcia, Stanislav Grof, John Lilly, all my favorites, spinning the hits up and down the aisle from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and today. Uh, so this is, a, this is a great talk. I mean, when we start off, we're talking about, you know, all my favorite stuff, things about the nature of consciousness. But we're also talking about the, the current state of psychedelic research into curing people from trauma. Uh, we're talking about whether plants actually have intelligence to them. Are they, are they trying to convey certain types of meaning to people? We dig into things that people can do to physically influence the states of their consciousness. We talk everything about, um, you know, whether prophets of old had access to certain endogenous chemicals in their body that was allowing them to see visionary experiences that people nowadays just don't have. And even talk about how early Alcoholics Anonymous founder... Um, was thinking about adding a 13th step into the 12-step program that included LSD. So that's just the beginning of the topic. We also talk about uh, David's most recent book on women and visionary art, uh, lucid dreaming, uh, and other topics that just, like I said, run the gamut. So that's what's in store for you. Uh, so without any further ado, let's just go ahead and jump on into it. Uh, I can't say it any better than David's going to say it in the podcast. So here we go with episode eight of the Who Knows podcast with David J. Brown. So I actually, um, I don't think I've ever met anybody, to be honest with you, quite as curious as you are. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in quite the diverse array of topics and and not only just on the topics that you've studied, but to but the the people that you've met, the life experiences that you seem to have, uh, you've led quite an interesting life. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> I guess I do have a curious mind. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I guess we could probably go ahead and jump into things. I can start. I can slice off some of the beginning part where we're wandering in, but. Um, 
I mean, from what from what I've been able, the books that I've read of yours, I mean, you've done a little bit of everything. I mean, you've written for Scientific American Mind and the Journal of Psychic Research. You've written for uh, quite a, a, a number of books, everything from detox with oral chelation to uh, Brainchild and the Virus, the Alien Strain, and, and then tons of books on, uh, not tons, but a number of books on lucid dreaming and uh, interviews with people on the frontier of psychedelic consciousness. So I guess, would you mind, for people who haven't met you before, kind of given just a little bit of your background, um, how you got started in being interested in uh, the study of consciousness, what kind of triggered that? Did it start at a very early age? Did it develop later in life and kind of set the table a little bit? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be most delighted to. You know, I guess I was always kind of interested in things as a child that were strange or unusual or out of the ordinary, the fantastic, you know, um, the occult, um, you know, the bizarre, fantastic artwork and surrealism and things like that. And like, you know, at the age of uh, 14, I began uh, experimenting with uh, meditation. I started doing transcendental meditation and uh, exploring my mind. On a, I was always interested in dreaming, and, and um, it was around that age that I began experimenting with cannabis, and a little bit later with uh, psychedelics. And um, coming from a, a background that was uh, mostly uh, atheistic and uh, scientific, um, you know, I learned about evolution as a child, and, and not so much about um, about uh, religious ideas. And uh, these, you know, spiritual dimensions in my mind and things got opened up and I got very interested in the, the study of uh, spirituality, religion, and, and then consciousness and psychology kind of uh, grew out of that. And uh, when I got into college, I began um, studying psychobiology and um, got involved in doing neuroscience uh, research, studying, um, studying the uh, electrical stimulation in the brain and uh, um, and uh, Aspects of behavioral neuroscience, and you know, it, you know, I really was interested in psychedelics. But uh, at the time, there was no uh, no uh, psychedelic research going on, unfortunately. And it wasn't until uh, many years later that I was finally able to finally uh, start working with maps and uh, and uh, writing about things that I had loved for many years. But um, in the interim, I explored a, a lot of different areas. Of, you know, uh, did many interviews with uh, brilliant thinkers. I had the opportunity to uh, interact with some of the greatest some of the greatest minds on the planet, scientists, artists, um, different creative thinkers. Um, and, uh, and that really helped me to, uh, to you know, build up a, a new philosophy. And lucid dreaming has been a long, long interest in mine. It's something that I've uh, been practicing since I've been a teenager and, um, and to this day. And, yeah, so that's a little, I guess, a little, a little overview of, uh, of my uh, previous existence. Yeah. So you mentioned in there, and one of the people, not everybody, some may and some may not be familiar with it. You mentioned MAPS. What exactly was MAPS? What is MAPS? And what was your role when you were working there? Yeah. yeah the MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And they're an organization that was started by uh, Rick Doblin to take uh, psychedelic drugs, um, uh, LSD, psilocybin, uh, cannabis, um, uh, ibogaine, and uh, MDMA and uh, how to um, turn them into um, legal uh, pharmaceutical drugs that doctors can prescribe for different uh, medical treatments. Uh, I worked with them for uh, for five years. I did their um, I did their uh, their special edition bulletins. I edited them and uh, interviewed people for them and uh, and 
and I highly encourage um, anyone uh, to uh, to donate uh, generously to uh, to the maps and to the. There's other organizations too, the Hefter Foundation and the um, the Beckley Foundation in England that are also uh, funding psychedelic research. Maps right now is focusing pretty much primarily on turning MDMA into a um, into a psychotherapeutic uh, tool and helping people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, they're right now in the phase three studies, which is uh, the final phase um, before turning a uh, a uh, drug into a um, pharmaceutical medicine. So it's it's very very exciting what Maps has been doing over the years, and uh, I was very very proud and happy to be working with them. And uh, like I said, highly encourage people to uh, donate generously when whenever they can to uh, to Maps and to these other organizations helping to further psychedelic drug research. Yeah, I think if if anybody hasn't if anybody is only familiar with psychedelics apart from their therapeutic. Um, um, benefits and they read your book and they read some of the stories that you um, you, you talk about in there. I mean, not only from people who've been um, victims of traumatic events and abuse in their lives to, to soldiers coming back from war and things like that. And some of the astounding, uh, life-changing and permanent um, a healing that has occurred to make these people be able to overcome these things. And if that doesn't change your mind, just to see this happening in people's lives, I don't know, I don't know what would, but it was really powerful. Yeah. Oh, it's just truly, yeah, truly, truly remarkable. I mean, the studies that they've been doing with post-traumatic stress disorder have been, have been the subjects have been people who have been treatment resistant. These are all people who, you know, all the um, traditional treatments all fail. And, um, so it's remarkable that they had like an 80, 90% success rate, you know, that lasts, you know, for, uh, for years. Um, it's, it's miraculous, you know, from a medical standpoint. So uh, there is a, you know, almost no doubt that within, you know, five years from now, we're going to see uh, MDMA uh, treatment centers uh, for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And, uh, and they'll be uh, far more accessible and available uh, to the average person than they are today. Yeah, it was really the, the, one of the stories that you shared about the founding of MAPS, and I'm, uh, pardon me if I don't get this exactly right, but from my memory, it was almost like it was MAPS was founded initially as a Trojan horse or not, or a vehicle, knowing that they were going to have to get into the court system and sue for the right to be able to use this classified um uh, agent as a therapeutic one, right? Where they were going to have to sue, uh, well, I don't know if it was the FDA or, or, but is that an accurate statement, what I'm saying right there? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty close. I mean, they weren't, they, they weren't, they wanted to be able to do research and they did not want this to become a Schedule One drug. So initially what they were doing was they basically were, were a group, of, you know, Rick, Rick Doblin got together a group of therapists who had been, um, using MDMA uh, underground in their therapy for years and they presented then to the the, uh, the FDA and to the um and to the court system the evidence that um that MDMA was being used in a very beneficial way uh, psychotherapeutically um unfortunately it didn't work uh, you know they the, they made it, the DEA uh, made it illegal anyway um and they fought this over the years i mean Rick Dalbin has just been unbelievably persistent 
and his battle, you know, his upward battle against uh, the draconian laws and against the, the, uh, the, all the misinformation and the, and the demonization of these drugs and the ignorance. I mean, it's just been amazing. I mean, we're now, I mean, I'm sure you know, we're, you know, we're in a, we're in a, basically a renaissance of psychedelic drug research. I mean, things really started switching and right or somewhere around 2008 or so, there hadn't been any psychedelic drug research from 1972, no human research at least, from 1972 until 1990. Uh, Rick Straussman's DMT study at the University of New Mexico was the first, that five-year study. And then since then, you know, as a, partially as a result of MAPS and the Hefter Foundation, Beckley Foundation, there's just been many dozens now, dozens of studies. Johns Hopkins has been doing a series of psilocybin studies and uh, MDMA is almost on the verge of being a legal prescription drug. They've been doing work with uh, with ibogaine, showing its potential as a as a treatment for uh, for addiction. Um, it's it's just truly remarkable. Um, psilocybin for end of life um, anxiety um, being researched at, at uh, New York University and and Canada and Israel. I mean, it's just it's going on. There's a, there's truly a, a renaissance is the word for what's happening right now. So. Um, you know, I personally, when watching this, since, since I've been a, you know, teenager, couldn't be more thrilled by what's going on in the world today. Yeah. What do you, What do you think the Why was there such resistance in the face of the evidence uh, as to the benefit? I mean, is it just residual as, uh, aspects of the war on drugs, or is there some other something going on? Well, you got to ask. You know, why was there the, the war on drugs? I mean, why was there? I mean. The, the, the war on drugs was initially started by uh, Richard Nixon as a, you know, he was looking for a way to arrest um, the uh, anti-war protesters. And uh, this is this is all well documented in tapes, by the way. It's not my guesswork. But they had, um, but they, um, they wanted to make marijuana and LSD uh, illegal so that they would be able to um, arrest people who were protesting the government. Um, that's really how the war on drugs got started. Well, why why did they make uh, psychedelics illegal back in the 60s? Why was there? A, it was it was I think mostly fear. I think there were people who were afraid. Um, one of the things that you know when people would do LSD, they would come back and they want to drop out of the system, right? I mean, people were you know dropping out of school, dropping out of college. Um, people were you know rejecting traditional values of materialism. And I think for you know for somebody who had never had a psychedelic experience and who placed a lot of value in uh, traditional materialism, um, this looked scary as you know scary as hell. This was really frightening. So I think that um, I think it was the it's fear, um, and as a result of that fear, you know, there's a, you know, the government. I think as I think the government remember was interested in psychedelics. The CIA was doing all kinds of nefarious. Um, you know, activity giving CI giving uh, LSD to people without their knowledge, and seeing if it had potential as a brainwashing agent or as a truth serum or or something like that. And so, there's a, you know, they certainly had a strong interest in using it um, for nefarious reasons. But um, the underground psychedelic movement, you know, continued uh, from the 1960s to the present. There had always been a small number of people uh, who had been using it underground, uh, some people using it in therapy and some people using it for spiritual or for reasons of mind exploration and different things like that. And, um, you know, that, that, that knowledge that people have been, you know, carrying all those years finally began 
to uh, to blossom as the, I guess you know as the older generations were dying and newer generations were coming into power and just there's just something that just began to shift right around you know the the turn of the millennium and um, and the biggest part of it I wrote an article for for Scientific American it was the first uh, mainstream article about psychedelic drug research that was positive that didn't demonize it that you know didn't um, didn't ignore it it didn't you know try to ridicule it I mean those have been the traditional approaches really you know to you know to uh, to demonize ignore or ridicule and um, and there's now been ever since 2008. There's been just one mainstream article after another where it's been, uh, you know, the scientific evidence has been truthful. It's been accurate. They've been positive. Um, you know, thanks to Michael Pollan now, it's uh, it's getting out into the mainstream. We just like, sorry, he was on Stephen Colbert recently. You know, talking mm-hmm. about his psychedelic, psychedelic experiences and you know, in, in a positive way. You know, finally, I mean. So I mean, it's 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 truly miraculous. I mean, my theory as to as to why this is happening right now um, is because one of the things that uh, that psychedelics do is they increase uh, environmental consciousness, they increase uh, environmental awareness and uh, um, ecological um, awareness. And uh, what are we facing right now? But just a tremendous catastrophe of uh, climate change. So I think that it's our, you know, deep in our DNA or, or deep in our uh, the wisdom of our uh, of our cellular machinery. There's some kind of understanding that that uh, we need ayahuasca right now. We need mushrooms. We need these things to awaken in us the uh, the ecological um, the ecological unconscious mind that we have that needs to be awoken so that we don't. Uh, we don't we don't kill ourselves in toxic chemicals uh, before it's too late. So I think that what we you know this, uh, this this renaissance in psychedelic drug research right now is really being fueled by the eco by the ecology crisis and climate change, and that uh, hopefully um, enough people will uh, will awaken in time before it's too late. Yeah, you brought up a couple things there that uh, uh, sparked something that I remembered. I, I back, I think the founder of AA, actually, Bill Wilson. I mean, he references that uh, I think part of his ability to overcome uh, his alcoholism and something that he was advocating very early on for Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, was the use of LSD. It, people forget that it was had this early therapeutic component it was going to be it was almost considered a wonder drug or miracle possibility for this for psychiatric cures and treatment of um compulsive like drinking and other types of uh, an alcoholism things like that uh is am i remembering that right is that is that true oh, in the yes. early days oh yes yeah that's definitely true um bill wilson uh founder of alcoholics anonymous um he had he had actually recovered from alcoholism himself Prior to to doing his first LSD trip, um, he did LSD later though, and was so um, impressed by it, and so impressed by the research that people like Humphrey Osmond were doing in Canada, where they had an incredible cure rate for for alcoholism. That uh, Bill Wilson wanted to make um, doing LSD the thirteenth step in the twelve step program. <laughs> wow! He, he, he really he really proposed this. Um, unfortunately, at the time. Um, there was already a, a board that voted him down. Uh, he didn't have as much, even though he started the organization, he didn't have, you know, overriding power over it. So the, the rest of the board voted that down. And it's sort of a, you know, kind of a lost piece of history, but it's been resurrected in recent years. Timothy Leary wrote about it quite a bit, and there's been a number of articles about it. But, uh, yeah, he definitely uh, believed 
and the, the power of LSD, the therapeutic power of LSD to help uh, help stop uh, alcoholism. There were those studies that I mentioned Humphrey Osmond did, and then there have been uh, more recent studies that show that um, people that use ayahuasca, the, uh, the, the brew that's down in the Amazon, um, that they have uh, almost no incidence of alcohol. Anybody who drinks ayahuasca regularly uh, has almost no incidence of alcoholism. Plants just does not let you, does not let you do it. So um, there's a, and there's of course the studies, more recent studies with uh, with ibogaine, the um, psychoactive component of the iboga root from Africa, and uh, ibogaine uh, has been shown to um, miraculously stop the withdrawal symptoms from uh, from opiate addiction, uh, from heroin addiction and other opiates. Not only stops the withdrawals, but gives the person a 24-hour you know, kicking the ass lesson about uh, how they got addicted to opiates in the future <laughs> and how to and how to how to stay away from them. I mean, it it's, it could I mean you could not invent a better tool for treating addiction than, than ibogaine. It attacks both the withdrawals and the cause of the problem both, and it's tremendously successful in terms of um, you know alleviating addiction in people. So um, that's another one that's that's being explored. So psychedelics have. Uh, tremendous power for 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 breaking for breaking um, addiction patterns and for helping people to establish uh, new patterns, healthier patterns of behavior. Yeah, and, and for people yeah. who wanted to read more about that, I, you covered um, some of the research of uh, I think it was a community down in Brazil who was using ayahuasca in this regard in your Frontiers of Psychedelic Consciousness book, and you have some case studies that are referenced in there as well, um, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yes, in the beginning of Frontiers of Psych in the introduction I talk about some of the um studies that have shown the the um uh, in the increase in environmental awareness and the increase in people getting involved in environmental action groups and things like that after doing ayahuasca. You also mentioned something about about this this renaissance that's occurring, and I don't know if it was interviews that you had done or references to Paul Stamen's work um, on on psilocybin and mushrooms in general, and how they seem to start appearing. Like there's this mushroom intelligence wherever there is disruption in the ecosystem or mankind is like whether it's going into the rainforest or clear cutting trees or whatever, these psychedelic type of plants seem to emerge almost with an intent to try to teach us something. Uh, is that I mean, do you believe that that's what's going on at some level? Well, I try not to use the word believe. It's a very, <laughs> okay, right. it's a very is that what your research leads you? <laughs> But, it, but it, uh, I, let's put it this way, Matthew. I, I highly suspect that that's the case because there's very, very interesting evidence to support what you're saying. I mean, isn't it just remarkably uncanny that you know that, that mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, according to Paul Stamets, tend to grow in areas that were disturbed by human beings. Um, in other words, areas, construction sites where they build new roads, when you know new, new buildings are broken in. It's the area where kind of nature meets man. It's that kind of interface is where the ground's broken up and where psilocybin mushrooms tend to grow. Now, isn't it isn't it remarkable that a mushroom that tends to increase ecological awareness and make people more environmentally aware tends to grow in those areas that are ecologically disturbed? So I think that's, and, and then if that's not evidence enough, people then tell them that the mushrooms themselves talk to them and tell them this. 
you know, they, they, they try, try to show, you know, what's going on, the, you know, the, the consequences of, you know, the uh, toxins that we're, we're pouring into our planet. So, so, you know, I wouldn't say I, I believe that that's the case, but it, 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 it's, it's, you know, the evidence makes it highly suspect. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So all these kind of topics that we kind of jumped ourselves right into the middle of kind of find themselves hovering around in the orbit of the general conversation of consciousness itself, right? And so I guess from your perspective, you started off very early, you were working in a, you know, in a scientific um, um, setting, doing deep brain stimulation, other types of processes to study the nature of consciousness. You know, at that time, did you believe, like many in, in the materialistic scientific kind of world, that consciousness was something that uh, arose from material process in the brain or did your own experiences from childhood and experiment uh, have kind of have an inkling that there was more to it than that you know it's a that's a great question um let, let's put it this way at the time when i was doing the electrical brain stimulation research i was certainly being taught i mean it was assumed that consciousness was was generated by the brain. I mean, there was there was tons of speculation about at what point does consciousness arise from the brain? At what point in evolution, you know, did the brain first become conscious? And that's sort of this, this underlying assumption in 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 neurobiology. Um, it's, it's almost you know it's it's never even speculated upon that consciousness uh, might have been a precondition um, for the brain to even appear. Um, Personally, I, I, I mean, I, I have been wondering about these things. It's, it's a mystery that, I, that I've been just exploring since I've been um, first experimenting with psychedelic drugs and with meditation. I began exploring these ideas, and you know, it's a very common idea in Eastern philosophy, and you know, in Buddhism and Hinduism, Taoism, that consciousness uh, precedes uh, material reality. The consciousness comes first. Which is just the exact opposite of the, you know, Western materialist idea that it somehow emerges as a property of activity in the nervous system. Somehow enough activity produces consciousness somehow. Um, consciousness is just the biggest mystery. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't have any definite feelings. I never have my whole life. I've never definitely felt that, you know, that consciousness, you know, you know, uh, you know, lives on after I, my physical body dies or that I'm totally sure that I lived in a past life. I've had feelings for all these things and they're all like maybes. They're all question marks. And, and I find it just sometimes, you know, just tremendously either inspiring or infuriating that there just doesn't seem to be a way to ever really discover the true nature of consciousness it's it's the most mysterious and yet the most mundane you know aspect of of, of our experience of reality um but I, I i continue to think about those questions all the time and, and continue to hope that someday i'm going to figure something out and uh and uh you know so I'm, I'm curious so what what do you think i mean it's, it's, what, what do you think comes first consciousness or or the um material world yeah, I th you said something er earlier that when we were talking about this, the Paul Stamets and the mushrooms, I, I don't want to believe anything. I don't want to use that word, believe anything. And I, I'm similar. What I try to do is I try to look at different models of the universe, right? The materialistic paradigm. I look at the, the one that 
the, the other types of paradigms where consciousness is primary. And then I hold them up to my experience. And, I'm, and I say, which of these different types of models provides an accounting for the, the majority of the types of experiences that I have without because the materialist paradigm, it's good at some things, but it leaves out certain aspects of consciousness and non-local consciousness and other types of experience. So the model is inherently flawed. So I need a model that will allow me to account for those types of experiences. And so when I when I look at the question of which is comes first, the, the, the consciousness as primary seems to account for more experiences and be a more uh, all-encompassing model. But then there's there's always your black swans in the in 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 the in the situation like um you had talked to interviewed uh, daniel is it cybert or siebert daniel cybert yeah cybert so daniel cybert you had yeah. talked to him and he does a lot of research i think it was with yeah. salvia uh divinorum and he said that that experience with his research on salvia made him a skeptic because the amount that the salvia could radically alter consciousness made him think that it was more consciousness was chemically based. So I've got to take in that kind yeah. of data too and say, well, it, you know, that's an, an, is that an inconvenient cr truth for the uh, consciousness as primary theory? Uh, what did yeah. you do when you were in, interviewing him and he said that? How does how do you take into account something like that? Um, well, I, I thought it was very, I was very surprised to hear Daniel Seibert uh, say that for a few your listeners who aren't aware. Daniel Seibert is a, a researcher who discovered uh, Salvinorian A, the, the psychoactive component of, uh, of the plant uh, Salvia divinorum. Um, it, was a, it was truly a remarkable feat of chemistry, something that, um, that Albert Hoffman himself discovered of LSD and Shulgun, uh, neither one of them were able to figure out uh, what the active component of salvia divinorum was, and it was because it wasn't uh, it wasn't orally active; it needed to be smoked. But uh, Daniel Seiber is the is the one who um, who uh, first discovered uh, salvinorian A and extracted it out of the salvia plant. And you know, when I was reading about um, Daniel's experience in um, in discovering the psychoactive nature of salvia of uh, salvinorian a um, he spoke about how he felt like he was being guided by mm -hmm. the intelligence you know the botanical intelligence of the plant that there was something about the spirit of the plant that was guiding him and helping him to make synchronistic kind of discoveries and you know little accidents and things like that that weren't really accidents and, and uh, he felt that the plant was communicating with him and helping to guide the discovery process. So yeah, so I was I was uh, surprised when I interviewed him and he told me that, oh, that was a long time ago and I don't mm -hmm. really believe that anymore. And actually now I'm become more skeptical of it. And, and like you said, you know, the, the, the fact that the consciousness uh, can be changed by chemistry uh, leads me to believe that it's, you know, dependent upon chemistry. And um, that's the, that's where I, you know, say, oh, wait a minute. Just because consciousness can be altered with chemistry doesn't necessarily mean that it's that its inherent existence is dependent upon chemistry. So you know that, that's um, it's still a mystery to me. It's to, you know I, I I hear what he has to say. I mean that, about that and the fact that consciousness can be altered um, by altering the chemistry of your brain to me is is interesting evidence about the the nature of consciousness. But for me, the, the 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 bigger you know the bigger mystery about consciousness is where does it go 
when you turn the brain off. You know, I mean, if you take a, a really high dose of a barbiturate and, you know, and you go what's called unconscious, um, are you really going unconscious or are you just losing memory of your consciousness during that moment so you can't recall, you know, what was mm -hmm. happening? I mean, the, the Hindus believe that you never go unconscious. Even in your deepest states of sleep or what we think of as being unconscious, you're conscious on some level, just not of this world and you don't have any memory of it when you come back. But... Um, I, I entertain that idea a lot, and um, and I think that that we're probably conscious. If we are, if consciousness is something that exists independently of the body, it means that it's never turned off. It means that it's always on to some extent. You never actually become unconscious. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. I think about this all the time, and I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know, you know, what where it's going to lead or what it means. But I do think that the the mystery prevails. So, yeah. Yeah, you talked about and in your your book Dreaming Wide Awake, you talked about um the ancient Egyptians had this idea of lucid dreaming or conscious dreaming and I, I think that and I don't know if it was the Tibetans if I'm uh, the Bardo states as well at the end of life um oh, yeah and yeah, these, the, so, the, the, is that right the Tibetan Buddhists the Tibetan Buddhists have been utilizing lucid dreaming um, as part of their spiritual practice for about 2,000 years. Right. So my, my thought was, is just like you wonder when you go to sleep for a, a bit and your con where does consciousness go in that? Is it a forgetting? Um, is it, I think the belief was that eventually if you could train consciousness enough to stay to stay online and, and avoid the the forgetting part that the Egyptians believed that you could potentially take the soul at the time of death and kind of maintain that consciousness throughout the cycles of the 45 day or whatever cycle of reincarnation that they believed happened and so you actually wouldn't lose consciousness through the process of reincarnation is that something that yeah. it, am i paraphrasing correctly there yeah what you're well you're a little bit getting your cure uh, confusing a little bit <laughs> okay it, it, it's, but it's but no but you got the basic idea right that's the basic idea that that the, the tibetan buddhists um have believed that um, lucid dreaming can be used as a technique for preparing people for the afterlife because they believe that the, 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 um, that there's a phase between death and rebirth. They believe in reincarnation. And there's a, there's a phase between death and rebirth uh, called the bardos. Um, which is the in-between, you know, in-between phases between um, between death and rebirth where you sort of relive aspects of your life and where you can help to influence where um, you reincarnate or incarnate in your in your next lifetime. And they believe that by uh, practicing lucid dreaming techniques that they can then learn to become lucid and conscious during the dream state as practice for maintaining lucidity and consciousness in the bardo states and in the after-death states and in so doing then be able to um, more um, consciously uh, choose their, their next uh, level of uh, incarnation. Hmm. So how do you, how have you through your reading and studies of consciousness how have you come to understand or interpret what have traditionally been called enlightenment experiences or enlightenment enlightened individuals um, how do you interpret those instances or individuals in in the broader study of consciousness that you've done interesting I mean I've heard the word enlightened used a lot since I 
since I've been a teenager and have interpreted it in, in I guess, a couple different ways. I guess primarily when I think of when people use the phrase enlightenment, I think of a mystical, someone who's had a mystical experience um, where they, uh, where their sense of self, the boundary between their little self and the rest of the universe uh, dissolves and their sense of identification um, shifts from the ego or their body or their, their, their uh, you know, their um, sense of, uh, of just being a little person on earth to suddenly becoming God or the universe or the planet or, or something greater than themselves where they merge with the, the higher process. And, um, and people who can maintain that or at least some memory of that experience are, I think, what most people refer to when they mean enlightened. But um, I guess it sort of varies from person to person. Some people also use the phrase just um, just to mean someone who's more aware or more conscious. You know, when you say more enlightened or, or less enlightened, and you remember that the phrase enlightenment include, includes the word light, and you know, in it. And it has something to do with getting closer to the light or closer to the, you know, and light being, you know, equivalent to truth or consciousness or God or ultimate reality or, or that sort of thing. But, uh, you know. Yeah, it's, it seems like we are woefully lacking in the West when it comes to a, a proper lexicon to describe the differing states of consciousness, and it really makes it difficult sometimes for people to describe it. Um, I, I, I think that you, you talked also in, in somewhere in one of the books about um, uh, spiritual crises, and the and the beneficial nature of spiritual crises and what can come after those happen and and I think that there's a there was a three letter word that that I'm missing out the the proper sequence to get the whole term in there but ultimately it is the fact that it, as a, as opposed to psychosis or other type of mental state the spiritual crises confers some added benefits to the person who goes through it uh, I I think for me I that that crises in the following um, benefits that are converted could be on that spectrum at some level of what people are associating with enlightenment, that general increased awareness. Could you, could you describe, do you remember the differences between that you outlined of what a, that spiritual crises is and, and how, what benefits it confer? Gosh, you know, I don't even, I don't remember really what, <laughs> okay. what, I, what I was referring to to be, to, be, to, be, to be honest, but I can talk a little bit about them. Difference between a spiritual crisis and a psychotic break. I mean, I, I, I'm very familiar with. I mean, Stan Groff um, and Stan and Christina yeah. Groff um, are the people who invented the term. They wrote a great book about uh, spiritual emergency. Um, you know, and there's been a uh, you know a lot of talk in in the psych you know uh, psychology the psychotherapeutic community about um, you know whether uh, whether someone's crazy, schizophrenic, psychotic, you know, going through a psychotic break, or whether it is, uh, in other words, some kind of a uh, spiritual crisis where their um, their old self is breaking down and they're uh, going through a sort of uh, rebuilding of their self in a, in a new way that takes into account aspects of reality that they didn't take into account previously. Um, I've seen many people go through this process. Um, it can be triggered by, by different things. Um, sometimes a, a traumatic event in someone's life, um, you know, the, the death of a loved one or um, some type of a trauma or accident can sometimes trigger um, these types of experiences. Sometimes a, a psychedelic 
experience when someone's not ready or if they have trauma that they uh, hadn't previously uh, dealt with um, can sometimes be brought to the surface by a psychedelic experience and then they have to go through this process. Um, it's, uh, I think, um, uh, you know, a, a very good psychotherapist, um, a transpersonal psychotherapist, I think, is very good at distinguishing between what's a, a spiritual crisis and what's simply a psychotic break. And that's where, um, you know, studying transpersonal psychology as a discipline, I think, is uh, incredibly valuable. But uh, transpersonal psychology, for those who don't know, is that branch of psychology that specifically addresses um, spiritual experiences and those aspects of uh, um, of the psyche that uh, that uh, transcend um, one's individuality. Yeah, I th I think um, I've I've always did, did been. I have an did, I, did I answer no, your question? Yeah, per perfectly. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> I actually, and you triggered some other th thoughts along the way while you were talking about it, which is the whole nature of what can trigger those types of events in people's lives. It feels like, and I can't really describe it I can fully, but I've experienced it in my own life, that for people who are on that journey that of self-discovery, the pursuit of truth, you know, that keep on digging and facing the, 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 the demons and the dragons and the fears in their life, it seems like every time they do it, it's adding another, you know, BB to the apothecary scale, right? And and eventually you keep on doing that and it triggers this dark night of the soul moment that is very akin to what you are describing, right? And right. so there seems to be natural processes that you can do that will, will cause them to happen. And then there seems to be accelerated processes that you can do uh, that, you know, psychedelics or other. Do you do you th do you think that in your personal experience and what you've seen with uh, with others that it's a good idea to you know force open the co the cocoon type of deal uh, and and use these accelerants or do you think it's a good idea to try to let these processes come naturally and 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 do them only when it when it appears to be the right time in your journey? Gosh, you know I think that is a question that needs to be answered individually you know, case by case and person by person. I don't know if you can generalize about something like that. Um, I think, you know, if I had to, to lean one way, I would lean towards the direction of these, you know, letting things happen naturally and to not try to force anything. But I could certainly um, think of arguments for why some people would, would want to, in some cases, to accelerate the process and, uh, and uh, you know, something that's, on the verge of, you know, coming to the surface to bring it to the surface and deal with it rather than have it just hover there for, you know, for years or something. So I can think of, certainly think of arguments as to why someone would want that, but um, but I don't think I can generalize, in a, in a, you know, unless, you know, in a, just a, yeah, I think you have to, I think people would have to really look at it case by case. And it's a very individual thing. I think what I, in my mind, what I'm thinking of is there, there have, it seems like there's cases where certain people get exposed to certain things. Like um, I talked to a friend of mine and we were talking a little bit about in the 1970s, they would have these like Kundalini awakening centers to deal with people who were having experiences that they didn't have the context for. They weren't ready for those types of experiences in their lives. And some level they were unwanted and there's not, there's some people and we all know there's pros and cons to everything who don't always have the positive experiences with psychedelics as well. Um, um, and I think as we go through this 
you know, as you mentioned, this renaissance that we're experiencing coming to understand, I don't know whether it's protocols or understand, you know, who, what type of people would benefit from this stuff, what type of people should avoid it. You know, even I was listening to a talk the other day about the use of cannabis and they were in Canada, they don't recommend it for people who are under 25 because of the frontal lobe development of the brain or people who have had histories of manic depression or, or other types of in, individuals. So I guess when I was talking about forcing open the cocoon or, or kind of understanding the context, I was really trying to uh, understand the, the ups and downs of, of these both religious experiences that change consciousness and also, also plant-based or psychedelics that can do the same. Right. And there always will be ups and downs and positive, you know, it's, it's always going to be a double-edged sword, you know, so. Yeah. Um, I wondered if, uh, and I, I know we're going to get up against the deadline here, so I want to, a number of things I still wanted to kind of talk with you about. Uh, one of the thing was, is you mentioned earlier in the conversation, Rick Strassman's work on DMT that he did. Um, and in your book, you talk about a friend of yours, um, I think it was Cliff Pickover, and he was a science yeah, fiction writer. Yeah. Uh, what books, by the way, has yeah. he read? I wanted to check some of them out. Or written. Oh, he's not a science. He's not a science fiction writer. He's a he's a science writer. Um, oh, okay. Gosh, he wrote a great book called um called uh, sex sex Einstein and drugs. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> but, uh, he's, done, he's done a number of books on mathematics, making mathematics you know more accessible to the average person. But um, I think you might enjoy the one on uh, sex sex drugs Einstein and elves. I think it's called sex drugs Einstein and elves. Nice. I'll, I'll, <laughs> he's I'll he's put a great it writer. He knows how to make science really entertaining. Very cool. Um, yeah, he had he had talked uh, to you and men you'd mentioned in the book that he had a theory that um, biblical prophets had been had produced more endogenous DMT, um, which led them to experience visions and states of consciousness that modern human beings uh, probably don't experience, but allowed them to perceive parallel universes, and that may be what they were conveying in um, their recollections that have been written down in scriptures. Um, and the theory was that we as a species made more DMT in the past because we had more darkness and less artificial light. light. Can you talk a little bit about Strassman's work, specifically the role that DMT has in altered states of consciousness in dreaming? And if you want to cover kind of Cliff's theory and what your thoughts on, on that, I'd, that'd be interesting to me as well. Okay, let's see where I can go with that. Um, okay, well, uh, Rick, Rick Straussman uh, did work with DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is a compound that is naturally found in, in the human body in a very small amounts, and uh, no one knows why why it's there. Um, when it's used as a psychedelic drug in ayahuasca or when it's smoked, it produces the most uh, powerful psychedelic experience um, that we pretty much know of, and people often report going to other dimensions and beating beings and entities um, of, uh, of a non-human nature that are extremely intelligent, apparently. Um, so there's this very strange phenomenon of, uh, of DMT, and Rick Straussman did a, a five-year study uh, with it, giving it to volunteers um, and seeing um, what the reports were when they uh, had these uh, experiences in other dimensions. And um, I think one of the most remarkable things about Rick's study was that uh, um, you know, he went into it, you know, basically thinking that maybe it was a way to help people have mystical experiences and, uh, and that this might have a, a beneficial effect. And I think he was very surprised to hear all these um, reports of contact with, uh, with entities. And uh, this was a very sophisticated group of volunteers with 
you know, years of uh, psychedelic experience, you know, and uh, psychotherapy, and um, and so they they were uh, describing these contact experiences that uh, he eventually, you know, decided um, the best explanation was that they were um, uh, might really be a might be genuine contact with uh, real entities and real places and uh, dark matter or dark energy or that sort of thing. And um, I thought that was uh, was uh, extremely, extremely interesting. Um, Rick speculated that uh, the DMT, which is naturally found in the body, might be produced by the pineal gland because the pineal gland uh, already produces melatonin, which is uh, very similar to DMT. And that it... Um, has been speculated by many people to be the, the producer of DMT in the body, but of course it's just speculation. We don't really know how DMT is produced in the body, just that it's found in the bloodstream and found in the lungs. But um, it could be produced by the pineal gland, and we know that um, since there's been um, since there's uh, been artificial lighting, um, we experience less darkness, and as a result, we produce uh, less melatonin. So the so Cliff's theory was that. Um, since we're producing less melatonin, perhaps we're also producing less DMT. And uh, and Rick actually seemed to think that there was a um, there was a possibility that this could be true. So um, yeah, <laughs> I mean it's 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 whether it's true or not, it's uh, it's really speculation at this point. Nobody knows why DMT exists in nature and and why it's uh, why it's found in the human brain or what it's doing, but it could very well be a doorway into a, to another dimension. And the biblical prophets that you know reported this. I mean, this was a, you know so it's at a time that was in the you know when there was um, no artificial lighting, so um, it could have been could have played a role. Yeah, I always thought that the most interesting part of Strassman's research was actually the fact that the the similarity of the beings that were, were being reported by the people who were in the study, because ultimately speaking, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but if it's if it's a hallucination that people are experiencing when they're doing the DMT, then they shouldn't have a shared hallucination if they're not in the same room, they're not at the same time, right? But people were coming back and in, in describing what was beyond in similar terminology, which would lead one to believe that there was a shared reality beyond this this visible reality that they were both tapping into. Is that an accurate statement? Yes, exactly. And that's one of the things that, that baffles me as, as well. I mean, it's just, why do so many people report, you know, the, the self-transforming machine elves or the, or the praying mantis <laughs> right. beings? Why, why do so many people report such similar types of beings? And why, when people do salvia, do so many people report, you know, zippers on, you know, unzipping reality? Or there's, there's such common motifs with these experiences that it leads me to believe that there is a genuine reality that people are, are tapping into that there's something real that they're seeing or else why would everyone be seeing the same thing? I guess someone could argue that it has to do with this, you know, the similar structures of the brain or something that they're tapping into something. But it's, you know, just intuitively, it feels, for anyone who's had the experience of DMT, it feels, you know, more real than this reality. And it feels like you really are genuinely, um, genuinely uh, perceiving a reality that's, that has an independent existence of your, uh, of your own mind. You should be able to set up tests for that, right? Like you should be able to set up um, uh, some kind of controlled test or a certain type of, of criteria where people would, on the DMT, they could report back and you could kind of narrow down some subsets of what that reality was, right? Through controlled yeah. 
split tests. Yeah, well, that's that was Rick Straussman's idea. He actually talked about that in either my interview or the or the book. I can't remember, but he talks about how um, you know in the future, if these if these beings are made of what we call dark matter or dark energy, that one day we may have you know photographs or video recording equipment that is able to uh, measure uh, dark matter and. Um, wouldn't it be fascinating if we were able to, you know, videotape and um, and demonstrate um, that, you know, the people the people are reporting during these uh, high dose DMT sessions, you know, corresponds to what we see during the um, the videotape recording. So that would be uh, that would be incredible. But uh, as it is right now, we have no way of, uh, of uh, measuring uh, dark matter or making dark matter uh, visible directly. So we don't really know if that's uh, just a crazy theory or if there's really some truth to it or not. Yeah, you also talked about, I think it was when you were interviewing Stephen LeBurge and you were talking about Terrence McKenna and how he would have these full-blown psychedelic experience in in dreams where he would take DMT in the dream. Yeah, yeah, isn't that wild? That's one of the things that got me really interested in lucid dreaming was um, the the idea of experimenting with psychedelic drugs um, in the dream. And uh, yeah, they do have um, their um, psychedelic effects inside the dream. So the psychedelic drugs themselves are apparently not really necessary. Right. The idea, you know, the belief that that you've taken is apparently enough to to make the experience happen. Uh, Terrence was the first one to tell me that. And I've I've tried it myself on uh, numerous occasions. And uh, it works. It really does. Um, it's interesting. It doesn't. It doesn't usually have a, as quite an intensive an effect because the dream itself is already kind of an altered state. But um, but I've tried everything from marijuana, ketamine, ayahuasca, DMT, and dreams, and uh, and they all have a psychedelic effects in the dream. But you know, I find also that just in a lucid dream, if I just sit down and just close my eyes and meditate, you know, that in itself is often extremely psychedelic and mystical and you can have very profound experiences just simply by meditating in a lucid dream yeah and i don't i just i'm just going to repeat that for people listening which is ultimately what he was saying laburge and you are saying right now is that all that's preventing us from having these waking trips uh, or psychedelic experiences is our mental construct the the reducing valve of consciousness that we accept on a day-to-day basis is in a fixed position and but belief alone at some level in the could be changing that is that i mean right yeah that's that's pretty much what yeah it's pretty much the way the way it seems and you know terence had told me that he thought that you know you needed to kind of have the experience in material reality first in other words you needed to first do the drug before you could be able to do it in a dream and then you know access the experience but you know i interviewed somebody for uh, dreaming wide awake who told me that they had taken lsd in a dream before they actually ever did it and had an LSD experience in the dream, um, and then they did do LSD a couple of years later, and they said it was remarkably similar to what they had experienced in the dream. So um, I don't even know that you need to even experience it in this reality. It seems like you could just do it in the dream and have a full-on psychedelic experience. So it's a great way to get around the legality issue and uh, and you know any of the other problems that you encounter, and obstacles you might encounter in physical reality. 
So you also had written, speaking of like what people can do physically to elicit more of these, experience more levels of consciousness or broaden their experiences of consciousness. You talked about the DMT potentially being associated with the pineal gland. A lot of people, it seems nowadays, it's kind of in vogue to talk about that third eye, the pineal gland. And it's got a long history from the Egyptians to Descartes and other people associating the third eye with spiritual awakenings. Did you have any, was there any um, of that that was involved when you started to look into protocols like your your oral chelation therapy? Um, or like, was it the desire to rid the body of unnecessary heavy metals and other things which may be affecting consciousness? Or was it strictly other reasons related to health? That's really a great question. You know, it really was the latter. Um, I have to admit, it was really mostly um, conditions of health that I was interested in. I was uh, I, I wrote a book on chelation therapy with Gary Gordon, who's a leading physician expert on um, how chelation removes heavy metals from the body, toxic heavy metals, lead, mercury, and things like that, and the, the beneficial health effects. You know, my personal experiments with chelation therapy, um, I found that they increased energy and they had kind of an antidepressant effect and uh, other, you know, basic, um, you know, biological improvements. But, um, you know, I hadn't really noticed anything about it raising, you know, my my uh, my, uh, my my enlightenment levels or my higher levels of awareness, um, you know, at the time. Um, I do think that's a really interesting question. Um, and I think that it, it may have, and I, I really didn't even think about that or wasn't really looking into that, but I do think that if it's removing, um, you know, uh, it's removing, uh, well, it, it does actually, you know, it removes, in addition to removing um, heavy metals, it does remove calcium. That's why you have to take multi-mineral supplements a couple hours after you right. do chelation therapy. So it would be removing uh, calcium deposits from the body. So it could potentially be removing uh, calcium deposits from the pineal gland if they're there and if they're interfering. So it's Pure speculation, of course, but I think there is actually some possible truth to, to what you're saying, and that's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, I think that some people had associated, I think that uh, fluoride had been traditionally a, a, another thing that had led to the calcification. So I, I don't think the word is quite used right because it's not technically calcium that's being, uh, but the accumulation of fluoride that uh, seeks the gland of the pineal. Um, so I don't know if chelation has any effect on fluoride to, uh, that's accumulating in the body or not. Not that I know. No, I, I don't yeah. think that. I don't think that it would, to be honest. No. Gotcha. Um, so I know we're coming up against on the hour here, and I want to be very conscious of your time. You've been very gracious with what you've given. I, there was a couple last topics that I know that we had kind of written down that I'd wanted to chat with you about, um, one of which was your, your new work that you're doing on women in visionary art, and the other one was a little bit about the lucid dreaming. How are you doing on time? Should we just jump ahead straight to the um, talking about your most recent work? Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds yeah. great. Awesome. So you said that you had a, a lot of your early work was really focusing a lot on um, men, honestly, in the field of consciousness. And I think you you've chosen to to remedy a little bit of that. Could you talk about a little bit about your most recent work uh, in your most recent book, Women of Visionary Art? Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, that's one of the I mean, I've done six collections of interviews and that's one of the continual criticisms that I you know kept consistently getting over the years was that 
the number of men that I interviewed for my books, um, you know, over, you know, just outnumbered the number of women. And, you know, this, Matthew, this wasn't anything I swear that I was doing consciously. <laughs> I mean, I, I really wasn't, you know, I really wasn't trying. I was really just interested in the people who had, you know, doing uh, my thoughts more, you know, accomplished a lot in their lives and were doing really interesting things in science or art. And um, I really didn't take gender in, into account when I was doing this, but just kept happening, you know, where the men outnumbered the women. And so um, because I kept getting these criticisms over the years, that was one of the motivations for uh, for doing Women of Visionary Art, which uh, which I did with my, my wife, uh, Rebecca, Rebecca Ann Hill, who is a visionary artist herself. And so that was really another uh, inspiration for doing that book was uh, was her involvement in visionary art and the community of women that she had gotten involved with and, and was knowing. And um, I really wanted to... Um, to help to help to um, get their work out into the world and to ask them the same kind of questions that I've been asking you know a lot of the, um, the men <laughs> in my uh, in my previous books so um, so and of course my interest in visionary art you know goes back to my interest in, in consciousness and the alteration of consciousness from my my teenage years I mean as a, anyone who's ever done a psychedelic I think one of the most remarkable things you notice is that when you close your eyes the, the, the visions that you see are just astonishing the, the ever morphing ever changing um, you know uh, meaningful uh, tapestries of uh, of colorful patterns and, and dreamlike images that rearrange before your eyes. You know, when I took my first LSD trip at 16, I never remember thinking if I was able to, to paint what I'm seeing right now, I'd be the greatest artist who ever lived. So this this fascination with these visions over the years has led me to be very interested in, in you know, as I mentioned earlier, surrealism and then psychedelic art and. And I've been uh, very, over the years, I did an article, I guess back in the 90s, for High Times Magazine about uh, psychedelic art. And at the time, you know, people, there were people like Alex Gray and, and uh, Barbara Mendez, and, you know, there was a handful of, uh, Todd Nuriyoko, a handful of, um, you know, really great psychedelic artists at the time. And, um, you know, even when I did that, hardly anybody knew who Alex Gray even was. Um, since then, since Alex Gray's, um, you know, uh, work being spread around by the band Tool and the Internet and um, the development of Cosm, the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, and there has been hundreds and hundreds of just new visionary, what they call visionary artists, artists that are sort of, you know, going beyond psychedelic artwork into a much more sophisticated form of representation that you know, that captures lucid dream or DMT-like experiences, and, uh, incredibly vivid and sophisticated detail. And, um, and, and I've been interested in, you know, this artwork over the years and watching this, this, uh, this genesis, this renaissance of artwork lately. Um, we just, you know, my wife and I thought, you know, that was another reason why we wanted to really help to, uh, to uh, capture this and get it out more into the mainstream because it's, you know, primarily people that go to festivals and it's a kind of countercultural phenomena and uh, we wanted to, to bring it out into the more mainstream arena. So that was our, those are the factors that uh, motivated us to, to do uh, Women of Visionary Art. It was just published a couple months ago by um, Inner Traditions. Yeah, you mentioned in the book how even the 
process of viewing art or through the process of viewing art, we it physically alters our brain because we're altering the patterns of the neurons that are firing. They're engaging these, mir these mirror neurons, just almost the same experience that the artist is having when she was creating it. We're actually experiencing it almost in a similar way. You think it's wishful thinking that art can change consciousness and this, that, that just even the process of viewing this might make people more empathetic to certain positions, um, either a female perspective on life that's needed nowadays, or, or is that just wishful, wishful thinking? No, I don't think that's wishful thinking. I mean, I think that's a, a genuine possibility. I think that, um, that, the, that viewing artwork can be a psychedelic experience. It really depends on how sensitive the person is, though. I mean, you know, not, it's not going to be strong enough for, for everyone to have the kind of uh, consequences that you're describing where a person becomes more empathic or, or more spiritually aware as a result of viewing it. But I think for someone who's extremely sensitive, um, I think that a powerful piece of artwork can be transformative and can have that, that kind of an effect, um, very much like a like a psychedelic, I think um, it's especially effective. However, when when you combine the two, <laughs> you know, when you when you view this type of artwork under the influence of a psychedelic, uh, then it can lead to very very powerful uh, mystical and spiritual experiences. I think of a highly transformative nature. Yeah, I guess kind of as a last question here, you had, I thought it was really interesting because I, I was reading your book and you were talking in the book about mandalas and how those are, you know, a type of visionary art. And you talked about people who had, um, without the knowledge of mandalas, would draw them after psychedelic, psychedelic experience and then encounter them later on. And we have one at our work here in a meditation room. And I remember sitting down and, and just kind of meditating in front of it and staring at this thing. And it almost like comes alive and it starts to move and morph and shape. Have you, what have you, uh, what do you think that people are encountering when they're experiencing mandalas uh, in a psychedelic state? Um, and is, is it, is it a construct of the mind? Is it a construct of the structure of the, of the external reality without the filters of consciousness? What do you think that is? I think it's probably a tapping into the, what we call the archetypal realm or the collective unconscious in some kind of way. I think a, a, you know, the most basic mandala is a, is a circle inside of a square, sort of a basic shape of a, and then they sort of get more complex, you know, with, you know, from that, from that starting point. But I think that uh, it represents the, to the, you know, it's an arch archetypal representation in the human mind of how the whole is in all the parts, of how everything that's in the universe is inside of everyone. And, um, and I think that, uh, that, that white, you know, white people see, you know, the archetype of the mandala is very similar to what people see, you know, all the, the archetype of the, the wise woman or the archetype of the, you know, the jester or the trickster or different things. There are just different forces or aspects of nature, I think, that, um, that, uh, that are inherent in our, in our biology, that are in our DNA, and that then manifest in our, that then somehow manifest in our minds and the, you know, in our individual experience of consciousness, and, and they're available to everyone, so they have kind of a, a non-local, a non-local dimension to them, but, uh, but you know, it's it's a mystery. You know, it's a real mystery. Why do we see mandalas, and why does everybody see them? Why do people see you know zippers unfolding and smoke salvia, and, 
You know, these things are, are really mysterious. The human mind's in this mystery. We have no idea where consciousness came from. We have no idea, you know, why we're we're conscious right now. But uh, but I don't think there's anything anything truly more fascinating than to, to study and to think about these ideas. Wow, that sounds like a great place to kind of wrap things up. Um, if people wanted to kind of keep up with your work and your research, uh, is there a place that they could follow either a Facebook page or a website that they can keep up with what you're doing? Yes, you can stay, um, stay current with my work by um, uh, I have www.davidjbrown.com. It's a new website we're actually building. Um, it has uh, many of the interviews. Right now, it currently has many of the interviews that I've done in the past with a lot of these different thinkers, and it's, uh, it's soon going to have an um, archive of a lot more. And uh, my Facebook pages are also uh, anyone um, who follows me or friends me uh, is a way to stay in touch with what I'm doing. And um, you can get my books on Amazon. I have an Amazon sales page. And... Um, yeah, and anyone who has any experiences with uh, with lucid dreaming or interesting psychedelic experiences, I always love to hear from people. So uh, people can reach me through Facebook. These have been great questions, by the way. I have to tell you, these are some of the best questions I've ever gotten on the podcast. So, yeah, <laughs> well, so thank you. yeah, I really appreciate your research and your and your thoughtful thoughtful questions, Matthew. Thank you. Oh, definitely. I've I've got another copy of Mavericks of the Mind that's on the way, and sometime maybe we can have you back and go deeper into the topic of lucid dreaming. And after I finish that book, I'm sure I'll have a couple more pages of questions for you. So, oh, so thanks great. again. Yeah, really. Oh, absolutely, my pleasure. So I'll be happy to come back. Let's do it again someday. All right, great. Well, have a great evening. Okay, you too, Matthew. Take care. Thanks right. very much. Bye bye. Care. Wow. So that was an hour, but it felt like 15 minutes from my point of view. I hope it didn't feel like it was dragging on from yours because I had a blast. It's so rare to find somebody who has the same burning desire to find the truth, but not only has the questions, but is willing to go to the end of the earth and interview the the greatest luminaries of the last 20th century um, to find the answers that you're looking for. So uh, that was a, a ton of fun. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't even cover but maybe half of the questions that I had to, to, to ask to David. I mean, just a sneak peek of some of the stuff that I was hoping to get over. He actually interviewed a guy called Stanley Krippner, who was a PhD and the director of a, a medical dream laboratory in Brooklyn who conducted studies to determine whether people could receive telepathic communication while they were dreaming. And the results were really quite compelling. And so I wanted to talk to him about some of Dr. Krippner's conclusions. He, David was also the research – he did the research for biologist Rupert Sheldrake, whose book uh, Dogs That Know Then Their Owners Are Coming Home and another book, The Sense of Being Stared At, both presented scientific studies of unexplained phenomenon. So we wanted to talk a little bit about that. And he also wanted to talk a little bit about historical accounts throughout history from Assyrian kings all the way up to Mexican uh, shamans who had experienced mutual experience dreams where people, two people would experience the same dreams and techniques by which you could achieve them. So I wanted to talk to a little bit about those experiences. So maybe next time, you know, we can get 
David to come back and talk a little bit more about that. And his work on lucid dreaming was really second to none. I had read uh, Stephen LaBarge's book and Robert Wagner's book, which was uh, Lucid Dreaming Gateway to the Inner Self. And, and honestly, David's book is as comprehensive, if not more, than both of those books. And he goes really deep into other topics such as herbs that can elicit more vibrant um, dreams and techniques and his personal experiment with uh, different techniques to achieve lucid dreams and the lesson that he's been able to learn from those. So I'd really enjoy having him back to talk about that. So maybe we can bring him back here soon. There was one thing that we didn't get a chance to get into quite as deeply as I wanted to on the podcast there, and that was when we were talking about the Bardo states, which are these states that occur following death in in Tibetan traditions that before you reincarnate, uh, they say that the soul goes through these different experiences of, of kind of a white light, and then these other experiences which trap the ego into these cycles of reincarnation, but you could potentially escape them if you're able to train the conscious mind while you are living, right? And the reason I thought that was interesting is that I had read this book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, back when I was studying religious studies in college, and I guess I never realized that that book had two different meanings. And this is true of almost all religious traditions. They have an exoteric and an esoteric um, belief. So the Bible is a good example of that when Jesus would always say in the and the Beatitudes and other teachings, he would mention uh, that these are for people who have ears to hear, right? And whenever he would say something like that, he was telling people to, to it was like a dog whistle for those who were initiated into what he was talking about to listen closely because he was about to give you a nugget, right? And it would have two different levels of teaching. And in, in fact, even in the Bible, they would talk about how certain things were given to the masses purposely to confuse them, but it was would be understood by the people who were in the know. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead was one of those types of books where most people think that it was a preparatory book that you would use to give to someone or read to someone after they had died to guide themselves through the transition uh, transition to rebirth. But if you look at the book that was written by Timothy Leary, Ralph Metzner, and Metzner and Richard Albert, who became Ram Das, uh, they wrote this book called *The Psychedelic Experience*, which was written and inspired by Aldous Huxley uh, in his experiences in *The Doors of Perception*. And it's a manual that's based upon that book. And when you read that book, they're talking in there about the whole purpose of the book is not for post-death type of things. The whole purpose of the book and the secret of life that they will tell you is that you should die before you die. And the goal is to, you know, kill off that ego part of you that most of us will identify with as the self. And if you can die to that ego, and they teach you how to do that in that book using psychedelics, but you don't have to use psychedelics. There's a way to do things like that without it. Um, But if you can do that in this life, then ultimately you can move beyond fear and you can discover who you truly are. So that was an interesting part of it. And and the other thing that's interesting about that is because 
when we talked about this in the podcast, which is exploring the different states of consciousness beyond the material um, and kind of consensus reality that we all experience. So we've got locked in to place a very fixed version of reality. And it's, it, it's kind of like that because like a bunch of sticks that are leaning up against each other to form a teepee shape, everybody is focused on the same reality and it kind of keeps it roughly fixed in shape. Um, but that has been said to be like a reducing valve. It, of all the different realities and different views of life that are out there, it's giving us one fixed perspective. And things like psychedelics or different states of meditation or contemplative prayer or, or breathing, holotropic breathing, other types of things can allow us to experience different types of realities, which is adjusting the consciousness valve. And what when we were talking in the podcast, we were discussing how certain people had experienced shared experiences, meaning that when they glimpsed what was beyond this ordinary life into kind of the realms beyond, they were describing similar types of things. Now, some people will say that these are archetypes of the subconscious, which uh, that's kind of a Jungian, Carl Jung's approach to things. You might say it's that. Some people will say that these things have a real physical reality, and this is um, that people are seeing the same physical beings, uh, whether they're spiritual beings or some other dimensional beings, that they're sharing those. And so, we were talking about tests that you could run where you could look at what are these, the things that people are reporting on the other side and how could that help you map out what that other reality was. And that was what Rick Strassman was suggesting when he wrote his books like DMT, The Spirit Molecule and otherwise. You'll even see it discussed in modern works on Netflix on shows like the OA where this guy uh, is trying to map out what happens beyond. And... I think the reason that this type of discussion is important is you have to understand and have a worldview that accommodates all types of manifestations of reality if it's going to be a comprehensive worldview, if it's going to be a good model of the universe. And the problem with reductive materialism is that it fails to account for these types of anomalies that are reported over and over again, and it either dismisses them, it talks about them as sheer hallucination, which makes no sense because hallucinations would not see the same types of things repeatedly. They should be individual to that person and not shared. Um, so when you're constructing your own version of reality, you have to account for those types of things. And this is why discussions like this are important. So that's it. That's this week. And it's a wrap. Uh, if you've enjoyed the um, podcast, as always, feel free to go ahead and leave us a five-star review out on iTunes and subscribe and stay up to date with new episodes, which will be coming soon. And uh, if you have any ideas, you're kind of getting the hang of now the type of things that I enjoy talking about, the people I love to interview. So if you've got some suggestions, please stop by our Facebook page and shoot me a message or post some suggested books or people to check out. I'm always interested in new avenues of research. So thanks again for tuning in and we will see you next time. It doesn't matter that you stay